1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is the producer, Sam Moppen is the engineer. Today we're going to talk with Charles Martin. He is a um, a novelist, but he's written a nonfiction work titled, they turned the world upside down, a storyteller's journey with those who dared to follow Jesus. That's coming up in the second half of this first hour of today's program. We're also going to take a look at uh, some COVID truths that apparently aren't true at all. Um, Johns Hopkins has done a study on some of the remedies that were imposed on not only the U S but around the world that apparently did more harm than good. And, May continue to do more harm than good. We'll talk more about that. First, the Oregon legislature opened its short 2022 session on Tuesday with majority Democrats laying out long to do lists, minority Republicans calling for restraint and a new House speaker citing his life as an example of why legislators work matters. Well, the 35-day session, and yes, this is the short version. You might recall the legislature has a long session and a shorter version. Well, this is the 35-day session. It also started with a record 15 members of color, 11 in the House, four in the Senate, up from 12 just one year ago because of appointees. All are Democrats who overall hold a 37-23 majority over the Republicans in the House and 18-12 to in the Senate. Well, Democrat Dan Rayfield of Corvallis referred to Oregon's diversity population. As he officially succeeded Tina Kotek of uh, the city of Portland as House Speaker. Together with the Senate President, the House Speaker appoints members and leaders of committees where the legislature does most of its work and assigns bills to those committees. Rayfield referred to his background. His parents divorced when he was just one year old, and they held totally different worldviews. His father was a Republican, a commercial insurance executive, and a colonel in the Air Force Reserves. His mother was a progressive and a feminist who worked to feed homeless people and uh, protested nuclear test sites in Nevada. Rayfield, he says, struggled in high school and college. He drank with the, and uh, experimented with drugs. He was arrested four times on charges of drunken driving, reckless endangerment and criminal mischief. He even got fired from a job at Disney World as a Jungle World cruise skipper. Well, he went on from there, giving a bit of his background. So if you happen to be a parent and that that biography matches your kids, there's hope for them. He's now the speaker of the... Uh the House in the Oregon Legislature. Anyway, he's 42. He's the first non-metro House speaker in two decades, aside from when the House was split 30-30 a decade ago, and co-speakers were Republican Bruce Hanna of Roseburg and Arnie Roblin of Coos Bay. He succeeds Tina Kotek, who resigned on the 22nd of last month after a record nine years as speaker to focus on her bid in the May 17th primary for the Democratic nomination for governor. Well, Rayfield touched on and Democratic leaders laid out lists of priorities for the short session. And again, the Republicans wanted to slow their roll. But some of the ideas that they have on that list, workforce training. Governor Kate Brown has uh, proposed a 200 million dollar plan known as Future Ready Oregon to prepare more people for emerging jobs in health care, construction and manufacturing House Majority Leader Julie Fahey, a Democrat out of Eugene, said lawmakers will take other steps to aid small businesses. That means investing in skills training for workers, reducing barriers for people starting and expanding their small businesses and making sure that playing field is level between those small businesses and large corporations. Also on the list, child care, increase the number of children who receive care at a more affordable cost and the workers who give it. Education, action to ease the shortages of teachers and substitutes while schools struggle to remain open during the coronavirus pandemic. Public safety, unfinished business, including a stronger focus on by police on violent crimes and less on minor infractions such as broken tailpipes uh tail lights, I should say, which drivers from racial and ethnic minorities are often stopped disproportionately. Healthcare, more money to expand the diversity and diversify the workforce, particularly in behavioral health. The latter's been the focus of a legislative group since the end of 2021, that session. Climate change and natural resources. Uh, the 2021 session approved goals for carbon-free power and wildlife. Uh, Or Excuse me, wildfire reduction. But there is uh, legislation to ratify agreements reached on timber taxes and the fate of the Elliott State Forest on the south coast. There's also a bill to allow communities to proceed with higher energy efficiency standards for buildings. Well, depending on the estimate, lawmakers have between $1.5 billion and $2 billion more to spend than originally projected in the current two-year budget. But some of that has to go automatically into a state reserve fund. And the governor and lawmakers have already agreed to carry over $500 million in federal funds to the 2023-2025 budget cycle. Well, voters approved a constitutional amendment back in 2010 to allow for uh, time-limited annual sessions of the legislature instead of an unlimited session every other year. Lawmakers dropped a proposed uh, restriction in the ballot a measure to limit the even-numbered year session to budget adjustments and emergencies. But Senate Republican leader Tim nope of um, Bind said lawmakers should hold themselves to those standards in the 35-day session. He didn't leave room for um, some bipartisan agreement, specifically on the jobs a training plan. Many bills other than budgets will have to um, advance to public notice of a first committee hearing on the 7th of February. And if they pass uh, this session, exceptions are bills in the rules and taxation committees and uh, joint budget committees. Well, House Republican leader Vicki Breeze Iverson of Prineville said if majority Democrats move ahead with the uh, bill to lift the exemption for farm workers, and that's on the table as well, From uh, overtime pay, such action would prompt a walkout that would deny Democrats the two-thirds majority required to conduct any business. A similar bill got the uh, Joint Budget Committee uh, to the Joint Budget Committee, but did not reach a vote of the full House in the 2021 session. So it will be short, it will be contentious, and we'll see if they stick to the rules that they established for themselves or veer away from that, and whether or not the Republicans will remain in the session for the full session rather than walk out in disagreement. We'll follow that story over the next 35 days. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. want to remind you, coming up in the uh, bottom of this hour, we'll talk with Charles Martin. Uh, His book is titled, They Turned the World Upside Down, A Storyteller's Journey with Those Who Dared to Follow Jesus. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. He'll join us about 4.30-ish. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next segment, we'll talk with Charles Martin, author of They Turned the World Upside Down. Well, an international coalition of athletes representing at least two Western nations will boycott the opening ceremony of the Beijing Olympic Games on Friday in an act of protest against China's human rights abuses. Well, given that... uh, Publicly condemning China could mean retaliation for those participants. Some are choosing not to make an appearance at the ceremonies as a symbolic gesture in solidarity with the regime's victims, including the Uyghurs, Tibetans and Hong Kong dissidents, activists revealed to The Washington Post. Well, the simple gesture of skipping out on the opening ceremony can be a tremendous opportunity for athletes to show solidarity and compassion toward the Uyghur, Tibetan, Hong Konger, and Mongolian communities that have suffered unimaginable human rights violations by the hands of China's Communist Party. That's a quote from the executive director of Students for a Free Tibet, rather speaking to the Post. Athletes, you have a choice. Your gesture of solidarity can make a difference. Well, the uh, group has been advocating for these marginalized groups by bringing them to events to meet Olympic competitors and encouraging them to engage in activism on their behalf. And while the uh, group urged the athletes to do a full boycott of the tournament, they agreed to settle for athletes skipping the opening and closing ceremonies, big PR events for the host nation. Political demonstrations against the Chinese uh, government is a precarious matter for those athletes. Um, Many are afraid of the repercussions of speaking out, whether that means arrest by Chinese officials or disciplinary action from their home country's Olympic organizations. Some athletes said that they would wait until they left China to explain the political reasoning for their ceremony walkout to avoid getting apprehended by authorities. So there's concern about whether or not that activism may cost them in ways that um, we don't yet even know. Meanwhile, governors from across the nation gave President Biden a failing or poor review and a generous D when asked to grade his White House performance, citing a lack of communication, inflation and the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. The View co-host, Whoopi Goldberg, has been sidelined or suspended for two weeks following her controversial remarks about the Holocaust and Jewish people in general. Newly retired NFL quarterback Tom Brady has offered... uh, tease of what his next chapter could look like after officially confirming his retirement after 22 seasons and seven Super Bowl wins in an Instagram post. If you're interested, you can check that out. In a case of voter fraud, an Arizona woman has become the 10th person in the state charged with voter fraud in connection with the 2020 election after she pled guilty to voting illegally on behalf of her deceased mother. COVID-19 shutdowns in the spring of 2020 reduced COVID-19 mortality by only 0.2% in the U.S. and Europe, according to a Johns Hopkins University meta-analysis of several studies. We'll talk more about that later in the program. A bit of uh, groundhog history. While the quirky day got its start in the late 19th century, historians believe Groundhog Day stems from... um, Candlemas, a Christian holiday that dates back to the 4th century A.D. will tell you more about that later in the program as well. Well, in politics, no vax, no meat. You're not vaccinated. You're not invited to meet with Representative Terry Sewell, a Democrat from Alabama and members of her staff. They will not hold in-person meetings with constituents or anyone else for that matter if they are not fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Now, the definition of Fully vaccinated seems to change from time to time, so we uh, aren't quite sure what that means to her, but Terry Sewell, not meeting U.S. Senator Ben Ray Lewin, a Democrat from New Mexico, suffered a stroke and remains hospitalized. He is expected to make a full recovery that could uh, make a make it a bit more challenging for President Biden's nominee to fill that Supreme Court vacancy. In a show of support, Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky and several other members of Congress, showed up on Tuesday to grab dinner at a Washington, D.C. bar that made headlines for losing its liquor license after refusing to impose the city's vaccine mandate on its customers and which is now being shut down. In a matter of opinion, Kevin Walling suggests that Joe Biden can secure a big win and cement his a legacy when he nominates the first black woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. Ironically, if you remember back, uh, Joe Biden prevented the first black woman nominated to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court under then-President George Bush from being considered. Try to fill in some of those details. So it's rather interesting. It's politically expedient today, but he opposed it when it happened the first time under a Republican administration. Rebecca Grant waves in, suggesting we forget the U.N. after Russia uh, started Monday's verbal food fight in New York and the United Nations Security Council isn't going to help Ukraine. But NATO still can. Well, that's a big if uh, with Germany on that panel Mm. signaling they um, are open for business. Home Depot has launched a new accelerated hiring process aimed at providing prospective applicants with a job offer at the home improvement retailer within as little as a day in an effort to combat the ongoing labor shortage. The White House released a statement in support of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's proposed COMPLETE legislation, which aims to take a harder line in financial and manufacturing relations between the U.S. and China. Well, sort of. However, the White House's statement of support didn't once use the word China, A concerning oversight for many Republicans who claim the America Competes Act of 2022 is all bark, but no bite. In an oil warning, California Independent Petroleum Association CEO Rock Zierman warned in an interview that already high gas prices in Los Angeles will be higher if oil is no longer allowed to be produced in the area. And that seems to be the direction they're headed. Well, leaked notes reveal how unprepared President Biden was to evacuate Afghan nationals who helped the U.S. from that story. The meeting notes highlight how many crucial actions the Biden administration was deciding at the last minute, just hours before Kabul would fall and former Afghan President Ashraf Ghani would flee his palace in a helicopter. Mark Jacobson in the same article points out that deputy NATO representative in Afghanistan during the Obama administration Uh, said that uh, uh, so much planning, prioritizing and addressing of key questions had not been completed, even as Kabul was about to fall, underscores the absence of adequate interagency planning, end quote. Well, according to a new study, lockdowns didn't slow COVID, but what damage it did to so many businesses is now being realized. Whoopi Goldberg has been suspended for two weeks from The View. She's off for uh, that period of time over her on-air comments. CNN's Oliver Darcy said, In a note to staff, ABC News President Kim Goodwin says, While Whoopi has apologized, I've asked her to take time to reflect and learn about the impact of her comments. The entire ABC News organization stands in solidarity with our Jewish colleagues, friends, families, and communities. Uh, some of the network uh, want her fired. There's a back and forth going on. Single payer has failed in California, as has so many other things there, even though Democrats enjoy a supermajority in both houses. But it failed to reach a vote. Progressives are fuming. Uh, Lanny Chen says, after all, who wants to put some of the same bureaucrats who mismanaged our state unemployment insurance system in charge of our health care? Hmm. President Biden stopped. A black woman from the Supreme Court decades ago, back in his days uh, as a senator and before he needed a large chunk of the black vote, uh, Janice Rogers Brown reminds us when justice sandra day o 'Connor announced her retirement. Brown was on bush 's short list to replace her. She would have been the first black woman ever nominated to serve as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. but then Senator Biden appeared on cbs 's Face the Nation to warn that if Bush nominated Brown. She would face a filibuster, you know, the thing that he kind of wanted to do away with today. Well, I can assure you that would be a very, very, very difficult fight, and she probably would be filibustered, Senator Biden said at the time. Asked by the moderator, John Roberts, wasn't she just confirmed? Biden replied that the Supreme Court is a totally different ball game because a circuit court judge is bound by starry decisis. They don't get to make new law. Of course, the Supreme Court doesn't get to make new law either. (laughs) Anyway, that's a whole misunderstanding. So it's rather ironic that he is uh, touting himself as a real leader in desperate need, I'm adding, of African-American voters because he's losing uh, community support. Would now uh, suggest that he is uh, mounting the first effort to place a, a black female on the U.S. Supreme Court. Hmm. Well, as part of the demands made, Oliver Ilya Shapiro, students want a place to cry, apparently on campus, a place to cry. Wouldn't that be home? Wouldn't that be the place to cry? The restroom? I don't know. Anyway, from the story, the aggressive cancellation campaign against the uh, professor on Monday, Georgetown Law Dean William Trinor announced that Shapiro would be put on administrative leave from his new post at the Law School Center for the Constitution, pending an investigation into a series of tweets that Shapiro posted in January, criticizing the use of racial preferences in Supreme Court nominations. But student activists were unsatisfied on the heels of a Georgetown Black Law Student Association petition calling for Shapiro's termination. A message went out last uh, last night announcing that a coalition of Georgetown law students will gather for a in calling for the immediate termination of uh, Shapiro and for the administration to address BLSA demands. One of those demands being a place to cry. David Harseny points out, these are law students. God help us. Dan McLaughlin weighs in. The whole story illustrates the depressingly illiberal, irrational condition of a subset of elite law students. Mm, isn't that the truth? Well, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the uh, top news stories of the day and some lesser known stories as well. Coming up, we'll have a conversation with Charles Martin. His book is titled They Turned the World Upside Down. Stay with us.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in the first century, believer didn't just mean someone who heard and agreed with Jesus. It actually meant someone who acted on that belief. And when the outside world saw the faith of these new believers, they declared they turned the world upside down. You can read more in the 17th chapter of Acts. Well, that's the kind of believer my next guest, Charles Martin, wants to be. The kind who understands that the truth of Jesus' life, death and resurrection is so powerful... It reshaped history, the kind of believer who lives with that same world-changing faith today. Well, in his second nonfiction work, They Turn the World Upside Down, a storyteller's journey with those who dared to follow Jesus. He uses his talents as a novelist to walk readers through the lives of the disciples in the aftermath of the resurrection and as they spread the message of the gospel and turn the world upside down. He illuminates key moments from scripture and shares stories from his own life as a disciple. Well, Charles Martin is a uh, New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with 15 novels and two nonfiction books. He and his wife, uh, Christy, they live in Jacksonville, Florida. He joins us today to talk about his latest nonfiction. They turned the world upside down. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
2: Well, I have to tell you, you write beautifully. And the fact that you're a novelist, I think, was very evident, even in the prologue, as you um, wrote a little bit about the, the events that took place following Jesus' resurrection. You painted such a vivid picture that for the first time, I imagined aspects of the story that I had never thought of before. So kudos on just writing well and telling a story we all need to hear in such a compelling way that we... Uh, I think readers will be uh, compelled to go deeper.
3: Well, I did that. Thank you. I did that then, and, I, and I, even today, when I'm you know working on whatever's coming next, I anytime I deal with scripture and I'm, I'm looking at it through the lens of me as you know Charles Martin, the novelist. I remember the admonition in Revelation that says it's really, it's really bad for anybody that comes along and adds to this thing. So I'm trying to, like, the, the thing that you talk about where I'm adding color or flavor or whatever, I'm trying to interpret Scripture using Scripture. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm hoping that I've not added. I'm hoping that I've, I've you know, i dug into Scripture enough, and I'm able to, you know, draw from it, draw from history, and add some, I don't know, something that wasn't there before that kind of brings you into it. And, and I think I'm also careful to say, look scripture is here. It says what it says. I'm kind of over here. I'm trying. I don't know that what I'm saying is absolutely perfect. I don't know that so-and-so was standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified, but if he had done to me, but what he did to them, I'd be there. So anyway, that's how I went about it.
2: Yeah. Well, I appreciated that you you gave some context that helped me to relate. It wasn't adding to the story, but you reminded us, for example, when they're standing in a particular place, the events that took place in the surrounding area, and it, it gave me a context that I don't know, I I just marveled at. So I I think you've done a good job without adding in a way that Scripture says you shouldn't. So let me just commend you for that.
3: Thank you. Well,
2: let me ask you, what motivated you to take on this uh, story? It's a nonfiction book, and as I mentioned, most of your writing has been uh, fiction. But you've taken on uh, perhaps one of the most fascinating stories following the resurrection of Jesus, of his disciples, and what it meant, what it took to turn the world upside down. Why take this on?
3: Well, I was, I don't know, I was 12 or so novels kind of into my career, and I was sitting there one day, uh, and I began having a kind of a conversation with the Lord saying something that sounded like, Lord, I'm really grateful that you let me do what I do, but if I could push pause on my fiction, I would love to to sort of tell the story of you and me and kind of what you've revealed to me about you through your word. And long story short, I, I, I pitched my publisher she liked the idea. She'd seen some of the stuff I'd done before. So that that produced a book called What If It's True? Where I really look at, mm-hmm. you know, is Scripture, is it really true today? Did, did, you know, can we look at it 2,000 years after Jesus said those things, and are they as true today as they were then? Well, when I finished that, she <laughs> Daisy said to me, do you have any more nonfiction? I said, well, the story's not over. It doesn't end at the cross. There is an empty tomb. And uh, she said, okay, write that one. So they turned the world upside down really came out of me looking at the lives of the disciples who when he walked into the upper room there Jesus' own description of them is that they were filled with unbelief. So he takes them from a place of unbelief and not being able to just wrap their head around what they're looking at. And by the time we get to Acts sixteen or seventeen when Paul walks into Thessalonica, he and those with him are described as these who are they who have Turn the world upside down or upended the inhabited earth. And it's really a derogatory term because they now have what people people perceive as the power to take on Rome. So it was just me wanting to write part two of the story because it, you know, it, it, the story of Jesus doesn't end at the cross. There is an empty tomb.
2: Let's let's take a moment and uh, consider what it means to turn the world upside down. I mean, most of us don't really create even a breeze in the world. They turned the world upside down. These were not people who had the completed scriptures. They were living out what would become the completed scriptures. But they had received the power necessary to make such a dramatic impact on the world they lived in. They didn't have the freedoms and the resources that we have, and yet... They literally turn the world upside down. Can you comment on that fact for a
3: moment? Well, when these folks, you know, Jesus, Jesus ascends off the Mount of Olives and he, you know, all of the disciples and their families are there with him. They're watching disappear. Something like Haley's comment appears and those folks start walking down the mountain. And I think, you know, scripture doesn't say this, but I think every single one of them walked down that hill thinking to themselves, okay, what on earth do we do now? We have His commands. We've walked with Him. We've followed Him. We know what He told us to do, but we don't have the power. And then a couple days later, the roof starts to shake, and Pentecost occurs, and they are filled with the Spirit of God because He's been sent from the throne room to fill them. From there, they walk out of there, now empowered to do the very thing He said to do. Jesus told them, He said, these things I have done, meaning these miracles I have done, these signs and wonders... These things I've done and you will do because I go to be with the father. So they just believed him. And this is one of the things I try to talk about in the book. They believed what he said and then they just went and did it. It was believe and do believe and do. It was really that simple. It wasn't rocket science. If it was, we certainly couldn't do it. So
2: (laughs) isn't that the truth? Well, what's your take on the (laughs) disciples? Why do you think Jesus chose these particular individuals uh, to, to serve in this way and ultimately to orchestrate the upheaval of the the entire known world?
3: Well, that's a great question. I don't know. Sometimes I get asked questions like that. I think it's above my pay grade. Maybe a more a fair question for me is why would the Lord choose me? And yeah. I can't answer that one either. I, I don't know. I can't understand why the God of the universe, this one that we read about in Revelation, whose eyes are a flame of fire, hair white, you know, sword coming out of his mouth, name written on a thigh, feet of burnished bronze. He sits on a throne and there are 24 elders around him and they're all on their face and they've thrown their crowns at his feet and the heavenly host is singing at the top of their lungs. And I don't pretend to understand all of Revelation or what it means. Or you know, I and All I know is that King of Kings, that Alpha and Omega, that beginning and that end, who spoke all of this and you and me into existence, left that throne to come here on a prisoner swap, a rescue mission for us. And I can't, I'm not worthy of that. And I can't wrap my head around it. So why did he choose them? I don't know. I have even less answer as to why he chooses me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Your first chapter is um, titled The Death of the Only Innocent Man. And that would, of course, be Jesus having lived a sinless uh, life. And uh, again, you sort of fill out um, the picture of the events that we know, Scripture. Uh, describes for us of what happened. And I I guess uh, the book really focuses on what happens next. You have these ordinary guys who have proven themselves incapable of grasping everything that Jesus says, incapable of uh, having the courage to stand with him at his most challenging moments. And he has now charged them with bringing the gospel to the world. Um, And they have to have had some confusion about what that meant or how they would go about it until jesus fulfilled that promise that he would send his spirit
3: sure i try to look at their lives through the lens of what did the lord have to do in them mm-hmm. after the resurrection because they're all a bunch of misfits like us i mean uh, take for instance the loudmouth spokesman you know of the group peter who at uh, the crucifixion we all know denies jesus and so he and 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 then upon the resurrection he's he's full of shame he's draped in shame wrapped in it and he doesn't quite know what to do he knows jesus has returned but he can't even face him so he 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 does the thing that he the only thing he knows to do which is go back to his previous life so he says i'm going fishing and all the other jokers following back back to the north into the galilee and notice peter is now no longer following jesus he's back in his old life doing what he knew to do and he's draped in shame and we see this beautiful story of Jesus drawing Peter back in and he you know he builds the fire on the bit of charcoal fire which immediately brings Peter's mind back to the night he did, he betrayed Jesus and denied him because he was around the he's there with the girl he's he's around a charcoal fire so as soon as Peter smells that he's like oh no my goose is cooked And he sees Jesus, and he also doesn't say, hey, tell me to come to you. He doesn't feel worthy to walk on water, so he wraps his cloak around him, which is different than anybody else, like Bartimaeus threw his cloak down. Peter wraps his around himself to go swimming, lands on the beach. He can't even look Jesus in the face, and in just beautiful, Jesus-mercy-filled fashion, he restores Peter. And it's just this beautiful, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, Lord. And and, then Jesus says the very two words that Peter needs to hear, which is, hey, follow me. And now he knows he's not disqualified. And from there, we see the shame fall off him. And in Acts 2, Peter walks up and gives probably the second best sermon in the history of sermons. And 3,000 people are added to the number. And Peter becomes who we all hope he becomes. And so I don't know. I just looked at it from the standpoint of what did the Lord need to do in these people to get them to the point that they're effective in his kingdom for his purposes and his will? And does he do that in us? And yes, I think he does.
2: Yeah, that's the the larger question. I think it's easier for us to read the scriptures and to believe what happened with these particular uh, men who were followers of Jesus. But it's harder for us to recognize that we have access to the same uh, power that they did Now we need to take a quick break we'll pursue that when we return in just a moment uh, once again you're listening to the Georgine Rice show we're talking with um, Charles Martin he is the author of they turned the world upside down it's just a beautifully written uh, retelling of what the scripture says and a challenge to us do we have access to the same resource they did to turn our world upside down even if that's just the neighborhood or our office we'll be back in a moment
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with author Charles Martin. In his second nonfiction work, They Turned the World Upside Down, he um, uses his talents as a novelist to walk readers through the lives of the disciples in the aftermath of the resurrection and as they spread the message of the gospel and turn the world upside down. You remind us that Matthew concludes his gospel with these amazing words. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And then um, uh, Mark ends uh, with this scathing account. He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Doubt was an issue for these disciples, and with that uh, backstory, we read that they turned the world upside down. What happened with the disciples that turned them from these uh, doubting, uh, questioning uh, men who had known Jesus had seen him after being resurrected, uh, and then turned the world upside down. They they weren't quite sure what to do, but gathered together, waited, and turned the world upside down. What happened?
3: Yeah, I think they took it in baby. I think they took it in baby steps. Um, all, all all I know to when I look at him, the, the the prism through which I see him, I, I just see him taking one step of faith, and then another step of faith, and then another step of faith, and they preach the gospel of the kingdom, and they laid hands on the sick, and the sick were healed, and demons were cast out, and, you know, the blind see and the lame walk, and they, I think they just did it as it came about. They just bumped into somebody who's blind or lame or whatever, and they say, rise and get up and walk in the name of Jesus, and, I don't know, they lay hands on the sick, and tell people, uh, you know, believe in or believe on the name of Jesus that he is Yeshua HaMashiach, the the Messiah, and I don't think they got it all at once. I don't think they mastered, you know, they didn't didn't get to the end from, you know, at the very beginning. I think it was a walk. I think it was, you know, they made, they goofed, they stumbled some, whatever, but I think the thing that the Lord did with them is he took their unbelief and through little, little acts of faith, that unbelief became belief and belief in practice, I think, becomes faithfulness. And I think that's who they finally became. I think they became faithful followers of the Lord. You know, the Scripture says, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And we walk by faith and not by sight. And I think they just did that. And something about their belief, like they, they just got to the point where they believed His words more than their circumstances and more than what they could see with their eyes.
2: You write about Pentecost and the role that played in emboldening and empowering because they were given power to do what they did that, that resulted in such a dramatic shift in the known world. Um, talk a bit about uh, uh, Pentecost and the power that Jesus had promised he would provide them and the difference it made for them and whether or not it makes a difference. Fast forwarding to the 21st century, the difference it might make now.
3: Well, Pentecost falls fifty days after Passover. So Peter preaches on the southern steps of the temple. The Spirit of God falls, as He's promised a couple of times in the Old Testament. The Father says, "I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh." He did that, empowered the disciples, and in those, you know, the believers who walked with Him, and we see sort of the ripple effects of that. If you follow the the disciple Philip, Philip is actually the only the only person in Scripture who's given the name The Evangelist. He's the only person described as an evangelist. Now, Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, but the only one ever described as an evangelist is Philip. And it says that when he would enter a town, he would proclaim Christ, meaning Jesus is the Messiah, the kingdom of heaven is near. And when he did that, demons were cast out, The, the sick were healed, and people got baptized. And it was it was as if the kingdom of heaven had come to wherever he was. And for me, that's just kind of been the model. It was just really simple. Jesus, I mean, Philip just proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. He is the Son of God. He did come and live a sinless life and die on the cross for our sins. He's risen. Uh, he rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And to help us, He sent His Spirit. It was just that was the gospel. So. I don't know. I think they just believed him and they did it.
2: For many believers in the 21st century, we don't have any difficulty reading what the disciples did, uh, their faithful service. And historically, we know how many of them served um, beyond what the scriptures tell us. And many lost their lives in that that process. But it may be more difficult to imagine that we have the capacity or the call, uh, perhaps, uh, to turn the world upside down as our world is defined and again our sphere of influence may be relatively small we may have a broader influence but we have access to the same spirit that raised jesus from the dead where does mm-hmm. our timidity come from and what do we what do we do with that
3: well i think the timidity we have is the same timidity they have mm-hmm. they had and mm-hmm. it was just you know it's just us i think when the writer of hebrews says something like take care lest any of you be overcome by a, an evil, unbelieving heart. So then and now, unbelief was kind of their problem and our problem. The thing that I I think, I think to some extent, it may be, I don't know, I don't want to compare us to them, but we have the added difficulty now in that the gospel has been preached for 2,000 years, and during that time, people have abused it, mm-hmm. and they've certainly abused the power of the Holy Spirit. So we today, and certainly in 21st century, you know, United States of America, have all of these examples of all of the places where, you know, people have abused the the power, role, truth, you know, of the Holy Spirit today. And so, what what we think of are big hair, TV, television, planes, jets, you know, the, the I don't know picture abuse. But we have the added difficulty of now trying to filter through the abuse and separating it from the truth of Scripture. And one of the things I try to make a case for in the book is that the abuse that we've seen or experienced or even heard of or people have told us about does not negate the truth that that is in Scripture and that Jesus tells us and promises us, I will send the Helper to you. Now, if you love me, obey my commands. So I I try to give us, you know, a little bit of understanding that it, maybe it's maybe it's a different kind of difficulty for us today because we have to wrestle through the abuses, but the abuses of the few or the church or whatever don't negate the truth that is in scripture.
2: You not only write about the disciples who walked with Jesus and who turned the world upside down, but you write a little bit about your own journey as a disciple. Tell us a little bit about your um your walk and your experience. Um, of obedience and faithfulness and uh, how you have experienced what the disciples did in God giving you the, the capacity to serve him well.
3: Well, well there's the there, maybe there's the assumption there that I've always been obedient or I've always been faithful, and neither of which would be true. But one of the things I love about... Um, one of the things I love about walking with the Lord and reading his word, and I do love his word. And it's in a nutshell, when Jesus looks at all of us and he says, follow me, that phrase, follow me is really just an invitation to come and die. And that's why Paul, that's why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life I live. I now live by faith in the son of God. So this, this thing when we see Jesus and we we want to follow him, I think it it, it, the, the, it it requires us. Following Jesus requires that we take all of our rights, all of the things that we think we own, that we have a right to, that just run the gamut, and we lay them down at his feet, and we surrender all of that to him, and then we give him the right to, or we submit to the right that he can either give those things back to us. Mm-hmm. Well, He can take them, and then we draw our identity from Him. But I think the the thing for me in my walk, whether I've been obedient or faithful or not, the, the thing that I come back to time and time again is that it's a daily— I mean, that's why Jesus says, take up your cross daily. It's a daily surrender. I wake up, and I surrender again, just like I did the day before. And and I yield to Him, mm. like, Lord and King, and like, what what would you have for me today? Like, how can I serve you? And I, you know, I can't, I don't want to speak much about my obedience or faithfulness because Lord knows I, I, I do, but I, I do, I do love him and I do desire to walk with him. And I, I do believe it's a daily surrender thing. Yeah. yeah. Well,
2: the book is titled, They Turned the World Upside Down, A Storyteller's Journey with Those Who Dared to Follow Jesus. It is a story well told. Um, and I think it's very compelling because in addition to just telling the story, you encourage us to, to consider how it relates to our walk with the Lord. And I uh, really appreciated how you managed to do that and to capture my attention at the same time. Uh, the book is published by uh, Thomas Nelson, currently available. Thank you so much for the book and for taking time to talk with us about it here today.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Again, the book, the, They Turn the World Upside Down, beautifully, beautifully written. All right, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about 10 COVID truths that apparently
1: aren't true. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. We're going to talk a bit later about the 10 COVID truths that apparently are not true, according to Johns Hopkins and research they have done. We'll get into that and much more. Well, Hulu has removed a debate on gender and biology. Walsh was a, on Dr. Phil in an episode that has mysteriously vanished. The story notes the episode featured a passionate debate about gender and biology that sparked strong reactions on social media from critics on both sides, including venom from those on the left and the right, uh, those on the left who were incensed by Walsh's appearance at all. Well, Matt Walsh says gender ideology collapsed all at once on national television because I asked one question. So, of course, our overlords have decided that nobody should be allowed to see. See it. Hmm. USA swimming testosterone standards could eliminate the male University of Pennsylvania swimmer, even if he did lower them enough, which uh, hasn't been an issue for UPenn. Uh, he still has a male's body against female swimmers. So that is uh, continues to be a developing story as to where that standard will ultimately rest. According to Rasmussen, half of voters back impeaching Biden, including 34 percent of Democrats. My question, on what grounds? I mean, impeachment is sort of what you throw around when you oppose your political opponent, but if you don't have impeachable offenses, eh, I don't know. Well, diabetes-related deaths jumped during the pandemic. Over the past two years, the number of Americans who died from diabetes hit record highs of more than 100,000 each year. That represents a rise of 17% in 2020 and 15% in 2021. Diabetes was and is a leading COVID comorbidity factor, but these particular death figures uh, were at least partially due to social isolation that contributes to unhealthy habits thanks to government-imposed lockdowns and other restrictions. Of course, some responded to this news by using it as yet another excuse to advocate for ever more government intervention. One Senator Patty Murray from Washington used the findings to push for Biden's build back better socialist boondoggle. What's missing is an appeal to individual personal responsibility as the vast majority of increased diabetes numbers across the nation are caused by life choices, not heredity. The national debt has soared to a record 30 trillion dollars. Speaking of avoiding responsibility, the national debt has topped $30 trillion, I should say, uh, for the first time in U.S. history, and the primary... Contributing factor is massive social spending, much of it tied to the COVID pandemic. Over the last two years, the national debt has swelled by a whopping $7 trillion as politicians have been spending your money like, uh, well, drunken sailors. To put things into even more shocking perspective, 80 percent of the current dollars in circulation were printed within the last 22 months. It is uh, any um, wonder that inflation has hit a 40-year high. Meanwhile, the only solution the administration offers is to ignore the debt and go on spending more of that freshly printed money. A fertilizer shortage threatens global crops. A nitrogen fertilizer shortage uh, threatens to cut global crop yields, and the shortage is due to soaring natural gas prices. That's a warning from CF Industries, a major producer of crop nutrients. Meanwhile, a massive fire burned through a fertilizer plant in North Carolina yesterday, causing thousands to evacuate the area over explosion fears due to the presence of an estimated 500 ton, uh, tons rather of ammonium nitrate at the factory. While so much attention throughout the pandemic has been placed on more obvious economic issues such as the scarcity of semiconductors, a more ominous problem of a fertilizer shortage should lead to food or rather could lead to food shortages and serious hunger issues on a global scale. You know, President Biden has ordered 3000 U.S. troops to Europe to support allies in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Meanwhile, Vladimir Putin slammed the U.S. response to Moscow's security demands. President Biden has designated gutter as a major non-NATO ally and ICE released a border crossing terrorist suspected a suspect, rather, despite an FBI recommendation because he might catch covid. So let's hope he stays healthy and doesn't engage in terrorist activity. A Democrat Senator Ben Ray Luan suffered a stroke which could complicate Biden's Supreme Court plans. With the 50-50 split in the Senate, the State Department rejected Amnesty International's apartheid Israel report, and Vice President Kamala Harris marked Holocaust Remembrance Day by attending an inauguration of a Honduran anti-Semite. A GOP bill would require abortionists to report suspected trafficking victims. And Jeff Zucker resigned as president after failing to disclose a romantic relationship with a colleague. It was a well-known secret. NFL is being sued for racial discrimination by a former Dolphins coach, Brian Flores. And Washington's NFL team unveiled a new name. They're now the Commanders. At least 30 law enforcement officers were shot last month. That's up 67% from January of last year. And a Christian school in Dallas hosted racially segregated school clubs. It used to be an issue in Dallas where we insisted segregation was not to be enforced. My how things have changed. Traffic deaths jumped 12% through last fall, continuing the pandemic surge, and Moderna's COVID vaccine has received full FDA approval. Leaked notes from a White House Situation Room meeting the day before Kabul fell shed new light on just how unprepared the administration was to evacuate Afghan nationals who'd helped the United States in its 20-year war against the Taliban. If time permits, we'll spend more time on that later this uh, this uh, hour. Key evidence undermining the Ukraine impeachment narrative was withheld from Trump's defense, and John Durham is going deep into Russiagate. A new U.S. District Court filing reveals an internal Department of Justice tug-of-war. Well, on this day in history, February 2nd, 1887, Groundhog Day, featuring a rodent meteorologist, is celebrated for the first time at Gobbler's Knob in Puxitani, Pennsylvania. According to tradition, if a groundhog comes out of its hole on this day and sees its shadow, it gets scared and runs back into its burrow, predicting six more weeks of winter weather. No shadow means an early spring. By the way, we are going to have a long winter. Six more weeks, according to Puxatawney Phil. Well, at least some groundhog. Groundhog Day has its roots in the ancient Christian tradition of candlemas, when clergy would bless and distribute candles needed for winter. The candles represented how long and cold the winter would be. Germans expanded on that concept by selecting an animal, the hedgehog, as a means of predicting weather. Once they came to America, German settlers in Pennsylvania continued the tradition. And although they switched from hedgehogs to groundhogs, which were plentiful in the Keystone state, the tradition continued. Groundhogs, also called woodchucks, and whose scientific name is, well, I'm not even going to attempt it, Attempt it. typically weigh about 12 to 15 pounds and live six to eight years. They eat vegetables and fruits. They whistle when they're frightened um, or looking for a mate, which may be frightening. They sometimes call whistle pigs and can climb trees and swim. Well, in 1993, the movie Groundhog Day starring Bill Murray popularized the usage of a Groundhog Day to mean the that uh, something that is repeated over and over. Today, tens of thousands of people converge on Gobbler's Knob in Puxatani each February 2nd to witness Phil's prediction. The Puxitani Groundhog Club hosts a 3-day celebration featuring entertainment and activities. And again, six more weeks of winter, according to Puxitani Phil or whoever the groundhog was. This might have been Puxitani Bob. I, I really don't know. 1870, the press agencies Havas, Reuters and Wolf sign an agreement whereby between them they can cover the whole world. 1876, the National Baseball League is founded with eight teams. Nineteen hundred six six cities, Boston, Detroit, Milwaukee, Baltimore, Chicago, and St. Louis, they agreed to form Baseball's America League. 1921, airmail service opens between New York and San Francisco, airmail's first day. 1959, Arlington and Norfolk, Virginia peacefully desegregate public schools. Thank you, Arlington and Norfolk. 1960, the U.S. Senate approves 23rd, uh, the 23rd Amendment calling for a ban on poll taxes. And 1987, the largest steel strike in American history in progress since August comes to an end. Some of the things that occurred on this day in history. Well, the media, health officials and big tech have been quick to condemn COVID-19 misinformation or conspiracy theories. But according to a new study, maybe those um, conspiracy theories and misinformation were not that far off the mark. We'll talk about what uh, John Hopkins in a new st- study has revealed about some of the things we thought were true that apparently were not. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show. We'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the media, health officials, big tech, they've uh, been quick to condemn COVID-19 misinformation or so-called conspiracy theories. They've censored social media posts. They've banned users from high-profile lawmakers to your grandmother. They've locked down the country. They've shuttered businesses and churches, arrested pastors. They've ordered the masking of children for years and fired essential workers over resisting mandated vaccines, all for the sake of slowing the spread of the coronavirus pandemic. We followed along. I say that generally speaking, because some have not. We followed it along because we were told it was in our best interests. Well, we now know that we've been, well, led astray by the very people who claim to be protecting us and Uh, We've been lied to repeatedly. So let's take a look at just a few of the COVID-19 conspiracy theories that weren't 10 times that media health officials or uh, very own president were proven to have lied about the coronavirus pandemic or at least misled the public. Lied might be a bit of a strong um, way to characterize it. Fifteen days to slow the spread. Well, experts and health officials promised in March of 2020, of course, they were unsure of what was going to happen, so they shouldn't have made the promise. Um, That we needed just 15 days to slow the spread. Almost two years later, we've seen almost 700 days of mandates, lockdowns, quarantines, shaming, hysteria and travel restrictions with no stated end in sight. Face masks. Well, during the early days of the pandemic, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended that Americans not wear face masks. And the U.S. Surgeon General urged us to stop buying masks. But in April of 2020, the CDC said that all Americans should wear face coverings to avoid transmission of the virus, leading to culture wars over mask mandates across the country. Heavy shaming of those who chose not to wear masks and viral videos of often violent confrontations between Americans. And that's not even touching the mask situation with children. Then the CDC said in May that vaccinated Americans don't need to wear masks in almost any setting And now most uh, media outlets are reporting that cloth masks just don't work and that we should try N95s. Then there's the the vaccine mandates. In December of 2020, the president-elect Joe Biden promised that he would not force Americans to be vaccinated. But this year, the administration did exactly what the president said he wouldn't do and mandated that healthcare workers and workers at U.S. companies with more than 100 employees get vaccinated. Now, you may agree or disagree, but... He said he wouldn't. The Supreme Court blocked the Biden administration from enforcing the mandates on businesses and organizations, but healthcare workers who chose not to get vaccinated will still lose their jobs. And now that Americans are seeing that the vaccinations don't fully stop COVID, more and more questions are being asked about why the mandating vaccines continues. Now we know that for those who are vaccinated and um, uh, with the previous virulent, they are less likely to get a serious. Uh, case, but nonetheless, you are still subject to COVID. Then the lab leak theory. Remember when we were told, we were all told that the coronavirus originated in a Chinese wet market. Senator Tom Cotton was lambasted by the media for suggesting the coronavirus actually originated in an infectious disease lab rather than an animal market, as the uh, government from China. Claimed. Well, Snopes called Cotton's claims speculative, the BBC called them unfounded, and the Washington Post went so far as to say that the lab leak theory was debunked. Well, after New York Magazine published an expose highlighting the legitimacy of the theory, many of those media outlets published stories confirming the legitimacy of the lab leak theory. Now we know that scientists consulting with the U.S. government early in the pandemic believed that the coronavirus originated in a Wuhan lab. But Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins worked to shut that hypothesis down. Then kids should re- should uh, go remote. Schools should close. Activists. Commentators, teachers unions argued throughout 2020 and 2021 that schools should close out of fear of spreading coronavirus cases from child to child and from child to teacher. The multiple studies suggested that COVID-19 does not easily spread among children and being in school settings didn't create outbreaks. One commentator in an Atlantic piece suggested that school closures could result in flexible Adaptable and resilient kids sparking heavy backlash from conservatives. Now, after months of even years of children missing school, even The New York Times is publishing stories warning that closing schools would be a tragic mistake, recognizing that hospitalization and death is uncommon in children. And then vaccines will end COVID-19. We were repeatedly promised by Fauci, Biden and others That Americans who got vaccinated would not get COVID-19. The president said you're not going to get COVID if you get vaccinated. Now, you might argue that at the time he didn't know if that was true or not. The point is, don't make those kinds of statements when there is uncertainty. When people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. Well, now, as we see many vaccinated people continued to get COVID-19, we know for a fact that that isn't true. Vaccinated Americans can still get COVID-19, though their symptoms are usually less severe and they're less likely to die from the virus. I mean, that's a pretty strong case right there. Well, as Fauci said in January, Omicron, with its extraordinary unprecedented degree of effect of um, efficiency and transmissibility, will ultimately find just about everybody. Vaccines don't affect Uh, One's menstrual health. Well, many American women expressed concern early on about whether or not vaccines would affect their fertility, complaining on social media that their uh, cycle had changed since getting the vaccine. Well, media and health officials repeatedly assured the public that there was no evidence to suggest COVID-19 vaccines negatively affected such things. Well, that until January of this year, when a new study found that women had an average cycle length of about one day longer than usual with other issues as well. And I won't go into detail. No masks after vaccines. We were promised that vaccines would end COVID-19 and that Americans would no longer have to mask after they were vaccinated. But the CDC changed its mask guidelines when it found in July of last year that vaccinated people could still get COVID-19 Delta variant. And across the country, politicians like D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser continue to mandate masks for indoor businesses and events. Well, Fauci didn't uh, fund gain-of-function research, we were told, but... Fauci has repeatedly denied that agencies under his direction engaged in gain of function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The medical the media rather called pushback on this uh, claim from people like Senator Rand Paul misinformation, but a high-ranking National Institutes of Health officer admitted in October in a letter that the Wuhan Institute of Virology had failed to immediately notify that it had engaged in what sure looks a lot like gain of function research, creating a lab-generated um, chimeric coronavirus between June of 2018 and May of 2019 that tested more deadly on mice with humanized cells than the natural virus it was made from. And the same day that the NIH officer sent that letter, the NIH edited its definition of gain of function. And finally, pandemic of the unvaccinated, a phrase the president continues to use, as well as Dr. Fauci. They've repeatedly blamed the unvaccinated for propagating outbreaks of the coronavirus, Delta, and Omicron variants. As recently as January 13th, the president said that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, ignoring the many, many vaccinated Americans who have contracted COVID 19 as of late. So we were quick to label some information as misinformation or conspiracy theory without actually knowing that to be the case. And much of it has now been understood to have been more accurate than what we were being told at the time. Such is life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a moment. So stay with us.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, apparently leaked notes from a White House Situation Room meeting the day before Kabul fell shed some new light on just how unprepared the administration was to evacuate Afghan nationals who'd helped the United States in its 20-year war against the Taliban. And this is such a sad commentary given the promises that had been made. Now, why does it matter? Well, hours before the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan's capital, that was back in the 15th of August of last year, uh, senior Biden, Administration officials were still discussing and assigning basic actions involved in a mass civilian evacuation. Outsiders were frustrated and suspicious. The administration was having plenty of meetings, but was stuck in bureaucratic inertia and lacked urgency until the last minute. And while the word immediately peppers the document, it's clear officials were still scrambling to finalize their plans on the afternoon of the 14th of August. For example, they just decided they needed to notify local Afghan staff to begin to register their interest in relocation to the United States, the document says. And they were still determining which countries could serve as transit points for evacuees. Last minute. Well, the big picture, the president was determined to end the country's involvement in its longest war, and there was broad support for that. And last April, he announced his plans to withdraw all U.S. forces from Afghanistan by the 11th of September 2021. President Trump had previously cut a deal for a U.S. withdrawal by May of 2021. Uh, President Biden's approval ratings still haven't recovered from the chaotic scenes of those final moments, with Afghans falling to their death from military transports and a suicide blast that killed 13 U.S. service members and scores of Afghans outside the gates of Hamid Karzai Airport. It was painful to watch. The Atlantic reported this week that thousands of vulnerable Afghans remain stuck in bureaucratic, well, Hades. Terrified, the Taliban they fought for years um, will hunt them down. Um, later this uh, this month, Congress will name members to a bipartisan 12-person commission that will study the war and issue a report similar to the 9/11 Commission. This is January. The the exit took place. In August, well the details some um, axios obtained the nsc 's summary of conclusions for a meeting of the so called uh, deputies' small group. It assembles um, top aides to various cabinet members and usually lays the groundwork for deputies or principals sessions or works out to practical details for executing decisions already made by their bosses. Well, the document regarded relocations out of Afghanistan, and the meeting was held from 3.30 to 4.30 on the afternoon of August 14th, Washington time. At that moment, Taliban fighters were descending upon Kabul. Well, the meeting was chaired by National Security Council official Liz Sherwood Randall and included senior officials across multiple agencies, including General John Hyten, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Well, the meetings, uh, meeting notes, I should say, highlight how many crucial actions the administration was deciding at the last minute, just hours before Kabul would fall and former Afghan President Ashraf Ghani would flee his palace in a helicopter. Well, the action items decided in that meeting, again, at the last minute included, the state will uh, work to identify as many countries as possible to serve as transit points. Transit points need to be able to accommodate U.S. citizens, Afghan nationals, third country nationals and other evacuees. Embassy Kabul will notify a local employed staff to begin to register their interest in relocation to the United States and begin to prepare immediately for departure. All of those things happening at the last minute. Well, while we're not uh, going to comment on leaked internal documents, this is what they're saying, Cherry picked notes from one meeting Do not reflect the months of work that were already underway. That's a quote from the NSC spokesperson, Emily Horn, speaking to Axios, who released the information. Earlier that summer, we launched Operation Allies Refugee and uh, had worked with Congress to pass legislation that gave us greater flexibility to quickly relocate Afghan uh, partners, Horn says. It was because of this type of planning and other efforts that we were able to facilitate the evacuation of more than 120,000 Americans, legal permanent residents, vulnerable Afghans, and other partners. End quote. Well, by the time the Saturday afternoon meeting happened, senior Biden officials across the government had been meeting around the clock to deal with the high speed unraveling of Afghanistan. The administration had taken some measures that would help them ultimately evacuate more than 120,000 people out of Kabul airport. By the 31st, the uh, president's revised withdrawal de- uh, deadline well, with the chaos and death. The effort to remove both U.S. citizens and cooperative Afghan nationals was executed in partnership with allies and some desperate, impoverished or rather improvised efforts from the private sector and veterans group who continues Uh, Groups who continue to work to evacuate vulnerable uh, citizens and uh, Afghans troops were uh, pre positioned in the region so that they could get quickly to Kabul airport to run the evacuation. The administration had accelerated the special immigrant visa approvals and the um, abided officials. had explored with other countries the possibilities of them serving as transit points for evacuees, which ultimately led to a network that hosted tens of thousands of Afghans waiting for processing. Nonetheless, many of the key decisions hadn't been made on the eve of Kabul's fall. That would be on the 14th of August. Well, the president himself and his intelligence community overestimated the ability of the Afghan military to defend their territory against the Taliban. And complicating the situation further, uh, the president, Ghani, had personally pleaded with Biden not to do mass evacuations of Afghans earlier in the year. Apparently, um, Biden decided to agree. He feared it would signal a loss of faith in his government. Sadly, it um, ended up not signaling a loss of faith in the government, but its complete collapse and the abandonment of many who would have been eligible to evacuate the bottom line many outside advisors were sounding the alarm as the taliban swept through provincial capitals heading uh, up to august um, i kept being told by people in the white house that things were most concerned about was the optics of a chaotic evacuation the optics that's a quote from matt zeller a former cia officer who contacted administration officials in February of 2021 about protecting Afghans who worked with Americans. They treated us like we were chicken little. They didn't believe the sky was falling, he says. On the 13th of July, just one month and a couple of days before the evacuation was to be complete, we offered to work with them to help evacuate our partners, Zeller went on to say. We all saw this disaster coming before the inevitable occurred. They didn't get back to us until August 15th. The day Kabul fell. Well, Mark Jacobson, who was the deputy NATO representative in Afghanistan during the Obama administration, told Axios um, that uh, so much planning, prioritizing and addressing of key questions had not been completed, even as Kabul was about to fall, underscores the absence of adequate interagency planning. Well, this is especially surprising given the depth of experience on Afghanistan and contingency operations at that table. So it was something of a post-mortem of what went wrong, what didn't happen, and why what we saw happen, happened as it did. Very sad to uh, see that unfold. Well, the U.S. national debt hit and exceeded $30 trillion for the first time in the country's history on Tuesday. That's according to the Treasury Department. That data confirmed the ballooning debt is largely attributed to the massive social spending prompted by COVID-19, the pandemic. Since the end of 2019, the national debt grew an astonishing $7 trillion. Well, The announcement comes as the Fed is expected to raise interest rates as early as March and um, every meeting following that March meeting to curb inflation and an overheated economy plagued by supply and demand imbalances. The Fed's likely move will be the first series of hikes since 2015 and will, by default, increase borrowing costs for the U.S. to finance its debt. Both monetary and fiscal stimulus have been through the uh, roof for the two years and ongoing COVID-19 crisis. And as of uh, December, 80 percent of all U.S. dollars in existence were printed in the previous 22 months, starting at four trillion dollars in January of 2020. The debt exploded to 20 trillion dollars in October 2021. But of course, it's now 30 trillion dollars. Senator Langford put the $30 trillion national debt in perspective, saying 30 trillion seconds is a million years. Well, depressing, calamity, and out of control are just a few of the words Republican lawmakers are using to describe the U.S. national debt, which now surpasses 30 trillion and has been rising under both Republican and Democrat administrations. Well, as of the 31st of January, the ever-growing debt stood At 30 trillion, and I won't give the other figures according to the uh, Treasury Department. In September, our national debt was 28 trillion. Senator James Langford tweeted. In just four months, our national debt has hit 30 trillion as a time comparison. 28 trillion seconds is 887,852 years. 30 trillion seconds is 1 million years. Democrats' spending is out of control and harming future generations. End quote. Well, Senator Mitt Romney, um, the Republican from Utah, tweeted deficit spending at its current pace is a precursor to economic calamity. Inaction on our national debt comes at a high cost to the American people. We must be able to keep up with the nations like China and maintain our lead as the guide um, for democracy around the world. End quote. Representative French Hill, a Republican from Arkansas, explained why all Americans should be concerned about the record debt in an appearance on Fox business on Wednesday morning saying it's depressing $30 trillion up $8 trillion over the course of fighting this pandemic. And Americans should be concerned about that because that's part of the reason why we're fueling inflation by all the fiscal stimuli, increasing demand while we have constrained supply and Biden policies to cut supply, like in the supply of oil and gas to power American industry. Secondly, as interest rates go up, We're going to have more and more of our budget consumed by paying interest on that national debt. One point increase in the average uh, Treasury rate is about two hundred and ninety billion dollars plus, which is uh, what we pay every year for the V.A. So it's an amazing impact on the federal budget in the negative way that affects every taxpayer. Yet Democrats want to keep on spending. Their $2 trillion Build Back Better bill is currently stalled in the Senate, but as President Biden told a news conference last month, I think we can uh, break the package up, get as much of it as we can, come back and fight for the rest later. Almost one year ago, in March of 2021, the U.S. Government Accountability Office issued what it called a sobering assessment of the government's long-term fiscal outlook, warning that once the pandemic has passed, the government must turn its attention to developing a strategy to deal with our debt and put the government on a long-term sustainable fiscal path. Well, according to Gene Dodaro, Uh, Comptroller General of the United States and head of the GAO. The truth is our rate of debt growth can't be maintained indefinitely. In fiscal year 2020, debt held by the public reached about 100% of gross domestic product, up from 79% a year earlier. We estimate that left unchecked, the debt will grow to 200% of GDP in 2048, well beyond historic levels. Well, the report noted that uh, growing gap between spending and revenues, which is built into the current design of our spending and tax laws. The Congressional Budget Office in March uh, in their report uh, said this. By the end of 2021, federal debt held by the public is projected to equal 102 percent of GDP. Debt would reach 107 percent of GDP, surpassing its historical high. In 2031, and would almost double to 202 percent of GDP. By 2051, you can apologize to your grandchildren and your great grandchildren now. They're going to demand one then. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I found an interesting article that said Virtual Reality Church. Now, do those three words actually go together? Virtual Reality Church, worshiping in the metaverse. How the faithful worship changed dramatically during the pandemic, with many turning to online services as churches closed in-person services for safety. Now some are practicing their religion in a whole new way. Churches have reopened, but people are pretty satisfied to go it alone, if you will. DJ Soto is a bishop who founded Virtual Reality Church in 2016. Virtual Reality Church. Hmm. It's spirit-to-spirit interaction, he says. We remember each other from the week before. We know each other's voices. We start to recognize each other's avatar, he says. So it's just really an enhancement for so many people, particularly those that can't attend a physical church. So your avatar stands in for you. We recognize one another. No, you're not seeing one another. You're seeing a cartoon figure of one another. Membership in his VR church increased dramatically during the COVID shutdown. Worshipers attended using virtual reality headsets and create an avatar. Everything from scripture reading to baptisms can take place in the metaverse. So you're not actually baptized. You're just, your avatar is baptized. Well, VR church participants say it enhances their religious experience. I was able to see a rendering of the verse I was reading, which made Scripture much more meaningful for me. A rendering. Uh, suddenly, you're empowered again. Suddenly, you matter again, says another. Suddenly, you're human again, says the avatar of one of the church members. Pastor A.R. Bernard oversees the Christian Cultural Center, a mega church in Brooklyn. I think considering what we're experiencing now in terms of the virtual world, the metaverse takes it to another level. The difference is that the current virtual experience appeals to the sight and the hearing. The metaverse, by way of avatars, allows us to engage all five senses. Sort of. I mean, you're not physically. How do you? Okay. He doesn't think this will replace in-person worship. Well, let's hope that's the case. There's just something about us as human beings that we require being in the same space. Okay, now we're on the same page here. He goes on to say, sharing the same physical space with someone else. So I don't think uh, we're going to lose that. I think this is a wonderful alternative, but I don't think it's going to take the place of the reality that the corporate sacred experience as an assembly is what God intended for worship. Well, I'm I'm encouraged to read that quote from, uh, from the bishop. Um, I'm not sure if he's a bishop in the virtual world or if he actually is a bishop in the real world, so I'm not sure how to refer to DJ Soto, uh, and I'm not sure that people who are part of the virtual reality church uh, also share his view that being a part of the actual church in the real world is the number one priority, but this is the direction that we're seeing um, worship, if you will, take. Wow. Wow. Then I found this, if there's one thing that te- that tech companies, rather retailers, content creators and investors can agree on, it's this. There's plenty of money to be made from the metaverse. But as CEOs try to elbow past their rivals to gain a foothold in um, the still nascent digital space, some psychologists and mental health experts say the race to turn a profit is taking attention away from the crucial question, will the metaverse be a safe place especially for kids and teens? Now, not exclusively, but especially, well, the answer isn't encouraging. Recent research has shown myriad negative effects of social media on the psyches of children and adolescents, from the prevalence of bullying and harassment to self-esteem and body image issues. Unless, of course, you have an avatar and you, you know, you build yourself into something you would like to be, and people admire what you're not. Uh, those same pitfalls could be just as prevalent, if not worse, in the wide open metaverse with its series of vast virtual worlds intended for both work and play. But if tech companies take those concerns seriously from the beginning and build solutions into their metaverse products, they could actually benefit children's mental health. Some experts say all of these new tools and all of these new possibilities could be used for good or for evil, which is usually the case. Mitch primestein's a clinical psychologist who serves as chief science officer for the American psychological association, who's um, dictates I often question uh, made the statement well today's social media platforms are already dangerous for some kids and teens virtual reality's uh, level of immersion could make these problems even worse uh, another psychologist who serves as the director of the medical virtual reality at USC's Institute for Creative Technologies there's a potency about being immersed in a world that is different than observing and interacting through a flat-screen monitor once you're actually embodied in a space, even though you um, you can't be um, physically touched, we can be exposing to exposed rather to things that take on a level of realism that could be psychologically assaulting. Now, this uh, this particular article was suggesting that this could be harmful to children, but I wonder about the broader context that involve not just children and teens and preteens, but adults as well who find. A home in the metaverse that isn't a home at all. Well, this is creating more loneliness, they go on to say. This is creating far more body image concerns and exposure to dangerous content that's related to suicidology. I'd never heard the word before. Well, the use of 3D digital avatars in the metaverse carries another problem, too. Being able to modify your likeness to project a version of yourself that differs from real life can be pretty dangerous for adolescents in particular. You are what other people think about you in adolescence, and the idea of being able to fictionalize your identity and receive very um, different feedback can really mess with a teenager's identity. Well, it goes on uh, from there. In December, Meta launched a virtual reality social platform, Horizon Worlds. Last March, Microsoft launched a cloud collaboration services, virtual 3D business meetings, other companies um, are grabbing toeholds in the metaverse through popular online games. Uh, and then they go into some of the specifics. Uh, the, the, the question is what this future holds. Um, being incentivized by the prospect of profit, there's very little thought that goes into the impact this may have on individuals, on communities, culture in general. And yet we are moving headlong into this fascinating virtual world um, appealing to adults who are finding virtual church more interesting uh, than actual in-person church i mean did did the scripture that says that the gates of hell will not prevail against uh, the church does that apply to the virtual church where people are not actually meeting and they're not actually seeing one another they're just avatars where baptism takes place in a virtual world where nobody touches anybody else and there's Not a physical expression of, you know, just a lot of questions being raised in it all. My hope is that while technologies are fascinating and they hold prospects for all kinds of good that can be um, garnered from them, that we are very careful about how we use them um, and how they might be abused and how they might impose on others, especially the more vulnerable uh, among us. Uh, things that are unhealthy in that whole uh, that whole setting. Wow, it's uh, kind of a fascinating thing to think about, but I hope we don't uh, go too far down that down that trail. One last thing I'll mention um, you know we have lots of holidays the these days uh, federal holidays. There's a twelfth that's being considered. It is the Lunar New Year. Now, we have New Year's, and that's actually a federal holiday, but the Lunar New Year is being celebrated. In fact, it was on Tuesday. It could become the United States' newest federal holiday under a bill proposed by Representative Grace Meng, a significant step to recognize a day honored by many East Asian communities around the world. If the um, measure passes, Lunar New Year would become the 12th federally commemorated holiday. Uh, The count remained at 10 for nearly four decades with the commemoration of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday in 1983. That changed in June when President Biden signed a bill establishing Juneteenth as a federal holiday. Meng, who is Taiwanese-American, grew up in uh, Queens, told The Washington Post that making Lunar New Year a federal holiday would send a powerful message of inclusion to Asian-Americans and non-Asians. The bill prospects are unclear, though Ming said uh, at uh, this early phase, she's not uh, run into any pushback. I mean, we could literally celebrate everything and everybody, and we wouldn't have to work ever again. I'm coming up with a list of holidays I think we should uh, observe so that I'll feel better. Um, And I'm sorry, but uh, Sam, you're going to have to celebrate because they'll (laughs) have to have the day off. Anyway, um, is it getting out of hand? Are we maybe going a little too far? I don't know. I mean, Lunar New Year, that's great. Uh, but do we need a federal holiday? And then if we have a Lunar New Year, what's next? One only wonders in our PC culture where uh, everybody has to be appeased in one way or another. All right, enough of that. We're out of time or at least just about out of time Um want to uh, encourage you to join us again tomorrow. We don't really know what's on the docket. We we haven't uh, figured that out. Sam is shrugging his shoulders. We don't know. Uh, We'll talk with James tomorrow and see if he's... uh, We're actually working on a couple of things, but they're not confirmed, so I'll just leave them at that. But I hope you'll join us. We'll uh, take a walk through uh, some of the headlines as well as uh, hopefully have what I believe will be a rather fascinating interview uh, with someone representing Voice of the Martyrs. Um, Anyway, that... That'll be determined tomorrow. We'll find out. Okay. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the
1: Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook.